The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No mai hoki mai ki the fold e mihi nei ko Duncan Grieve toku ngoa. My guest today is Chelsea Rapp, who is the chair of the New Zealand Game Developers Association. She's just in the next few weeks coming towards the end of what's been a, a three-year term uh, leading that organisation, which basically is an umbrella group that that represents the, the 75-odd game studios which exist in New Zealand and collectively form a large and and fast growing part of our it's 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 interesting right where do games sit do they sit in technology and in creative industries are they more like movies or or are they more more like software as a, a service and the the truth is they're their own thing and they they have some common elements to both those uh, different sectors and, and some others besides um, they they're also they're a bit strange in that they because of that sort of slippery nature when we talk about media we don't tend to sort of consider gaming even though the actual scale of the global gaming industry is larger than all other media combined by several factors it is just an absolute it's it's an absolute beast but because it doesn't have the same kind of star power or you know critical infrastructure or you know there's just some elements which which don't really exist around gaming that do around the likes of film music journalism um etc which might be why i've this is the the first time i've really dug into the industry on on the fold but uh chelsea's a really great person to to do that with she's got a very good global view but also still works within the industry she's the co-ceo of a studio from christchurch called cerebral fix um she's also in some ways you know typical of uh the gaming industry and in that she wasn't born into it she was a gamer who uh, has a degree in molecular genetics and traversed into the industry when she moved to New Zealand and has now become a very powerful advocate for it to the point where, you know, the, probably the signal signature win of her time as chair of the NZGDA is that something that the industry had been lobbying for for, for 10 years was was a rebate to, to match Australia's. Um, you know, this is a very common thing now with different aspects of uh, the the creative industries and there are very reasonable uh, critiques to be made of the sort of escalating international competition to, to use tax incentives to either keep or attract um, talent or, or, or business to various locations. But uh, certainly for for the Game Developers Association to to get that that across the line, particularly at a moment where money is just really tight in governmental circles at the moment, was was a pretty extraordinary thing to achieve. Um, we talk a bit about that. We talk about her own kind of background and and get a real sort of 
feel for how the New Zealand game scene works, what its challenges are, and um, where where they'd like like to end up. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really good first step into gaming. I think I'd like to to do a little bit more on that over the next few months. So, uh, yeah, this is Chelsea Rapp, who is the for another couple of weeks at least the the chair of the New Zealand Game Developers Association on the fold. Dinakwe, Chelsea, welcome to The Fold. Thank you for having me. Uh, I was wondering if you could start by, you know, you're actually the, this is really reflects poorly on me, but but um, you're the first person we've we've had from New Zealand's uh, very vibrant gaming industry on The Fold. I wonder if you could start by just giving me a bit of a kind of helicopter view of, of where it's at and, and, um, and how it's tracking. Sure. So there are about 75 game studios in New Zealand, which is often way more than people think that there are. Um, together, we generate about uh, $400 million in revenue annually, which accounts for about uh, a quarter of New Zealand's software exports, which is pretty exciting. And the industry has been growing really rapidly. I mean, it grows about 40% every year. Last year in particular, it, um, you know, grew exponentially, which was uh, really exciting for everyone in the industry. Um, and I think we're, you know, with the new game sector rebate, looking to continue that growth. Yeah, I want to talk about the the rebate in a little bit, but I wondered if we could sort of uh, zoom into to your role within the industry and and sort of how you came to to chair the Game Developers Association. Sure. So I'm one of those people that's had you know a really sort of unconventional entry into the industry. I'm actually uh, trained as a molecular geneticist. Um, and I got into it about five years ago, uh, when I moved to New Zealand, you know, sort of the role I used to do in the United States didn't exist here in New Zealand. So I had to change careers and I wanted to do something that was more creative. Uh, and I used to work in sort of project management for software development for medical devices. So I said, you know, what exists at the nexus between software development and creativity? And it was video games, um, and I've been a lifelong gamer myself. So, you know, after I'd been in the industry for a couple of years, I wanted to get more involved. And um, in my past life, I did a lot of sort of regulatory policy and lobby lobbying. So I um, decided to join the NZGDA and run for their board and uh, was elected in 2020. And I've been doing it ever since. Um, and I primarily focus on these days, uh, you know, lobbying, government advocacy, but also supporting the industry at sort of a national and international level at conferences and um, various speaking opportunities with government and government groups like NZTE and MB and all of that. Do you want to tell me a bit about, you know, you, you said you're a lifelong gamer. Tell me a bit about your own sort of personal history with it and then how you sort of moved that into to your sort of day job uh, sort of co as co-CEO of uh, Cerebral Fix? Sure. So I, uh, I started back when, my goodness, this is going to age me, but my first um, video game system was the original PlayStation and the Xbox. And I always used to, every weekend, we would be at my dad's house and my brother would always play, my younger brother would play a lot of video games and I never had sort of the courage to play, so I would always watch him. And I just watched him play video games for probably three or four years. And then we started playing uh, co-op Halo together. And that really kind of started 
you know, my venture into video games. Uh, and these days I love sort of, you know, all open world RPGs. So, you know, Assassin's Creed and um, Dragon Age and, you know, those types of games. I really look forward to those launches. Um, and I probably play more video games than I think I'd ever really admit to, but I find them to be such a sort of relaxing, you know, not stressful escape for me from what is a very stressful day job, both, you know, sort of helping to run a game studio, but also sort of shouldering the responsibility of, you know, lobbying for an industry that was going through a really tough time. Gaming is a, it's quite an, it's a, it's a really interesting sector in that, you know, for everything from sort of mobile games to console to, to the sort of Steam community type things, like there's just the, you know, a single person can create a game or, or a team of like, you know, a thousand or, or more, uh, you know, and it, ju it just means a lot of different things in different contexts. New Zealand, with that kind of so, sort of, as you said, a surprising number of studios, is there a particular kind of characteristic of that that it, that sort of binds it to the, those those studios together? Like a, whether it's a type of gaming or, or, or game or platform, what 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 is it that sort of makes this country's uh, gaming, you know, the, the the sort of business of gaming here uh, sort of singular and, and unique? Well, I mean, I think one of the really cool things about the New Zealand game industry, as opposed to the industry in other countries, is that is really the strength of its community. And I think that's not something that I anticipated. Again, I'm from America. You know, we have sort of this hustle kind of culture. It's very competitive. It's very fast paced. And a lot of that, you know, still exists here. But within the game community, it's incredibly collaborative um, you know, they share resources, they share connections, they share contacts. Um, and I think a lot of that is fostered by, you know, there's a game studio in Wellington called Pickpock, which is, I think they celebrated their 25th anniversary this year or something kind of crazy. Um, and the great thing about that is there are so many people who sort of got their start at that studio and then went off to form their own studio. So you can kind of see this sort of diaspora out of pickpock into other creative enterprises. And I think because of that, there are a lot of studios that focus on mobile games, which is what pickpock specializes in. And you can sort of see the influence of that and Mario's influence in a lot of those studios. And it's cool to kind of see them grow from, you know, a company that was so small to one that, you know, makes some of the you know, mobile gaming's biggest titles. Um, and that influence has really led into other studios as well. I mean, Dinosaur Polo Club, another great studio uh, based in Wellington, they make many motorways and many Metro, which are consistently in the Apple App Store's top, um, you know, games online. And I forget what the actual stat is, but there's a, a pretty significant portion of Apple Arcade games revenue that is made in ANZ. So it's definitely disproportionate. You know, we punch above our weight when it comes to mobile games. And I think that's because Mario has been so collaborative, but also, you know, the industry has really fostered a culture of sharing and collaboration for shared success because video games don't really, you know, compete in the same way that sort of traditional products do. You know, you can give a game idea to 10 studios and you'll get 10 completely different products. Um, 
which makes it advantageous for everyone to share. Yeah, aside from sort of pickpock and the, that, as you described it, the pickpock diaspora, are there a couple of other, what, what, are, the, what are the sort of the biggest um, and, and kind of most, I, I guess, most impressive to your eyes, New Zealand gaming studios and, and what, what, what is it about them and what kind of products have they made that have kind of led to that success? Well, the most popular one, or the one that probably the most people have heard of is probably Balloons, which is a tower defense game. Again, can vary consistently on the um, the list of Apple's top 100 games on mobile. There's also Grinding Gear games. They make a game called Path of Exile, which has been running more than 10 years now. They actually have their own convention called Exile Con that's you know pretty often hosted in Auckland. There's Rocketworks. They uh, are on the top floor of the PwC Tower in Auckland. They make a game called Icarus, as well as a couple of other games. Um, and there are also a lot of really well-known indie studios doing some really cool things. I mean, uh, Black Salt Games made Dredge, which has been sort of a global indie breakout hit of this year. They launched in March. Um, and there are also some studios that are just doing really cool stuff uh, from a technology perspective, you know, there's G-Factor down in Dunedin. They uh, are working with sort of real-time uh, racing simulator track creation. So basically wearing uh, a GoPro and going downhill and actually recording a track as you do it. So you can sort of make a game live, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, and there are just a, a lot of really cool sort of innovations in this space across AR and VR uh, which I, again, punch way above their weight globally. Is there a, this sort of feels connected to a question I asked earlier, but, you know, when we talk about culture and, and think about, you know, the, whether it's music or television film that is uh, made from New Zealand, we, we tend to think about the extent to which it can contain and convey some kind of elements of national identity or, or culture do you, whereas gaming feels like we spoke earlier, you talked about it being global from day one, and there is a kind of sense of them existing in this sort of almost like a, yeah, it's, it, they're, they're not sort of, they don't feel as ge geographically anchored as, as some other cultural forms. Do you, are there things that you see that are sort of inherently from here, whether it's elements of indigenous culture or, or geography or other uh, elements to, that, that come through in, at, at times or in places? Yeah, definitely. Of course. I mean, there are really great examples of um, Māori and Pacifica culture, uh, different, you know, visual and cultural elements being incorporated in games that are made here, but also in, you know, really big title games like Apex Legends and League of Legends, where sort of really big U.S. and European studios are coming to New Zealand to collaborate with um, New Zealand studios. You know, Maui Studios did a really great uh, Māori game character for Apex Legends, which was very cool. There's also Matia Interactive, which makes uh, a game called Guardian Maya. This is um, uh, the first Māori RPG that's going to be made. And the really cool thing about that is that it started as a visual novel. So you can actually download... Um, the visual novel, novel from the internet and read this kind of really incredible story. And now they're working to turn that story into a role-playing game. 
And the the thing I love about that is that the um, founder of that studio, Maru Niho Niho, she did a 3D scan of her daughter, who actually plays Guardian Maya, the main character in the game. So that's the kind of, uh, the, the, the sort of beautiful aspirational um, element of what, what gaming could be. And there's also a sort of a, a flip side is that it hasn't historically, you know, it, it does have a reputation as a place that is can be at times hostile to diversity. Um, and, you know, there's obviously the, the kind of horrors of, of Gamergate and so on. What, what is, you know, do, is that, something that the industry is that that is still true of the industry i guess and and you know how what, what sort of yeah what what is the current state of the the kind of attempts to take it away from that kind of cliche of the of of the gamer and and um and of those who who make games yeah i mean it's definitely still present we talked about this a little bit earlier i think Um, games are sort of one of the few products where people often conflate the consumer of that product with the people who make that product. You know, you very rarely look at a road and think about the people who built that road and conflate the two. But in games, that's just so common, you know, to use the word gaming and gamer um, to mean the same thing. And I think that creates such a challenge for the people who work in this industry, because you're right, you know, online game communities are, you know, so many of them can have such a toxic culture. And I think for young people, especially, especially young women and, um, you know, other sort of underrepresented groups, you look at that online culture and you think, why on earth would I ever want to be a part of that? Why would I choose to work in that space? Um, And it's such a shame because I think that game studios especially, you know, really set an incredibly high bar for diversity and inclusion within our industry itself. Um, That's not to say that we do particularly well when it comes to diversity. I think last year, only a quarter of our workforce identified as female. But I think that's because so many young people choose not to participate in it. So I think, you know, ultimately games really suffer from sort of an image problem Um, And it's really on us to kind of go out into the community and into secondary schools and tertiary institutions and showcase, you know, the incredible diversity that we have and to be leaders in saying that we choose to make these really healthy, beautiful um, workplace cultures that are completely separate from our online communities. And not only that, but in doing so are committed to making online communities better in any way that we can. The online communities are, are sort of inherently really difficult to manage. They they do have sort of self-sustaining and self-reinforcing cultures at times. And, and certainly you could understand why anyone who had had exposure to them who maybe wasn't the, the sort of stereotypical white male gamer and, and felt alienated by some of that toxicity didn't sort of naturally go, well, that's an industry I want to work in. How, how do you go about... And, and have you seen uh, examples of of those cultures re- reforming themselves, or does that remain a sort of quite a pernicious problem for the industry? It definitely still remains a problem, and it's such a challenging problem to tackle because it you know expands so far beyond just games into sort of you know socioeconomic issues and you know equality and 
Um, you know, it's a really hard thing for a studio to try to tackle. And it becomes even harder just given the, you know, sort of volume of online content that exists, especially as you're seeing more studios that um, allow users to create user-generated content. It adds this whole sort of other level of moderation that you have to introduce that becomes ever more complex and, and changing every day. Um, but I think that we are making headway, you know, overall. I mean, I think it was in 2020 or 2019 was the first year that of the games at E3, more than a quarter of them were considered nonviolent, which is sort of the biggest percentage we'd seen in the history of E3, which for people who don't know is sort of a big games marketing conference where all of the new games are announced. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, the pandemic. You know, you had more people who had never played games before in their life. You know, now they're stuck at home and they're looking for things besides Netflix to engage with. And so many people turned to games to connect with each other and, you know, pass the time away in lockdown. And I think because of that, that sort of changed, um, you know, player appetites and attitudes towards gaming. And I, it really incentivized studios to create more nonviolent titles. So while you we're always going to have sort of, you know, the call of duty first person shooter type communities that are often associated with that toxicity. I think, you know, we also saw this incredible growth in sort of wholesome, idle, nonviolent games that are, you know, preferable to, you know, especially a slightly older generation, but definitely to women where those spaces were a lot more welcoming. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Yeah, and another of the big kind of phenomenons of that lockdown era was the sort of growth of, I don't know whether you call them games or sort of environments like Roblox and, and Minecraft where, you, where, they, where they were, you could kind of build games within that ecosystem. And I know certainly for my kids during that, that time, that became one of the main ways that they sort of interacted with their peers when they couldn't otherwise it, does New Zealand have a like a community there? Does, is that part of the sort of uh, NZGDA's ambit, and and has that sort of stuck around a bit? That, that that sort of culture within those kind of composable worlds, definitely. And I think it's only going to continue to grow. And I think this often comes up a lot when people talk about the metaverse. And I think when people think about the metaverse, you know because Facebook made it so big and flashy, I think so many people are like, you know, on a particular date in the future, we will have just arrived at the metaverse and we will all know that we're there. But I think it's a lot more sort of nebulous than that. And 
we will arrive without having known that that's where we're at. And that's sort of where, you know, the contributions of games to the metaverse and to that area is, is helping to create spaces where people can create their own content, see that content online, and then engage with others who are doing the same. Um, Roblox, Roblox is just sort of the most topical example of that, but there are loads of other online communities that do the same. I mean, Minecraft is essentially that as well. They're just really these like big sandboxes where people can connect with each other, but also make games themselves. They can create characters, they can create online personalities and ultimately create these sort of little worlds that they can, you know, invite others to inhabit. And I, think ultimately that's the future of not just games, but sort of social interaction online, um, you know, outside of, you know, social media, media, television, Netflix. I think everyone's going to have to sort of generally go in that direction because like you said, Roblox, especially for young people is sort of changing the way their expectations for how they will engage with people on the internet. And it ultimately will become the standard. Switching tack to think about the the local industry. One of the you know I was at, down at the uh, budget announcement, the the lockup and the Beehive, and I think probably the the big sort of surprise announcement uh, of the whole thing was uh, that that ga- the gaming sector, which had been lobbying, and and certainly the the vibe was. That it had been unsuccessful. Um, that all the coverage that I'd read in advance of it had been lobbying for a kind of a, a rebate scheme, like a, a sort of a, a, or an incentive scheme to to match moves that had been made in Australia. Uh, wh- how how did that come about? And and were, were you sort of surprised to 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 get that win, especially in this kind of current economic environment? Oh, definitely. I think to say that I was surprised would be a bit of an understatement. I had only written a negative press release because I was so convinced that we weren't going to get it. And it was one of those things. I mean, the industry has been lobbying for it for more than a decade. And it just became really topical when Australia introduced theirs because we essentially have sort of a shared labor market. And Australia's incentive, you know, incentivized growth in Australian studios and they needed people to fuel that growth. And so all of the people in Australia sort of got picked up immediately. And then studios said, where's our next place that we can go for talent? And New Zealand became the obvious choice. And, you know, that induced a lot of panic in New Zealand because there was just no way that we were going to be able to compete with the sort of packages that were being offered over there. I mean, we had a someone who had a, was offered a hundred thousand dollar signing bonus. And there's no way that a small business, a studio, even the most well-known stu- known studios in New Zealand could compete with that. And they were losing a lot of incredibly senior talent, which is what makes it so that studios can grow and innovate And so it was really sort of a make or break moment for studios here. I mean, everyone was sort of holding their breath for that budget announcement. And then when it came out, I don't think any of us were really prepared to, I mean, in all the interviews I did, I think I was like, you really fumbled my words because I was like, I, I just hadn't prepared for this outcome. And I, you know, everyone of course is super excited about it. It's not to the same scale of Australia's, but we never, 
that was never the goal. You know, Australia's scheme is really designed to help attract big U.S. subsidiaries to their shores, and ours was never meant for that. Our goals was always and has always been to promote the growth and development of studios that are here in New Zealand and ultimately spur the growth of New Zealand IP that stays here, the jobs stay here, the revenue stays here. And I think MB actually did a really good job in terms of listening to us and listening to the industry when they designed our uh, incentive program, because there are a lot of aspects to it that, in my opinion, make it more attractive than the Australian scheme. But I think when you look at them side by side, you know, 45% to 20% doesn't look comparable. But when it comes to the implementation, those details can, you know, really make a, a big change. Do you see that as, as kind of enough to, to sort of position it and sustain it? I noticed that New Zealand First has come out advocating for uh, increasing it to, to 40%. And there's this kind of slightly uneasy thing where creative industries broadly are, are sort of persistently advertising advocating for a form of um, incentive that, you know, were it to be applied economy-wide, sort of breaks the the wheel of the, the tax system. Have you had any contact with New Zealand First on that? And, or, or, or do you sort of think that that you can stick on 20% and still achieve what, what the industry kind of uh, is, is aiming for? I mean, I also just saw the New Zealand First announcement this morning, which it, you know, is super exciting for, it's a little surreal for us, I think, to see games be called out so explicitly and in such, and if I'm being completely honest, a sort of unexpected place. Um, and I think ultimately, and this argument comes up a lot, right? The, we don't want to have a race to the bottom. And I think that's a sort of unfair sort of tagline to attach to this for two main reasons. One is that, you know, these incentive schemes are not new. They might be new to New Zealand, but they've been around for decades. I mean, pretty much every major English-speaking government has one. Uh, New Zealand was actually the last one to get one. And the reason that these governments do this is because the payoff economically is tremendous. You know, it's unreasonable to say that an investment in all industries will yield the same results. We all know that. But the truth is, if you look at the other countries that have done this, and we point to Finland a lot because they're about the same size as New Zealand, both geographically and in population, you know, they've been investing in their industry since the 90s. And now their industry generates $5 billion annually, um, which is incredible for such a, a small country. But it's, you know, sort of the types of jobs that you want to have for the future. You know, they have a much lower carbon footprint than some other jobs. They're very high paying, they're highly skilled, and they're a lot more equal opportunity than a lot of other jobs in the tech sector. You know, I mean, we have lots of developers in our studios who took free online courses on YouTube and now they're senior developers. So it's has a much sort of lower barrier to entry than a lot of other industries. So I think that's part of it. You know, the first is the reason that governments invest in these creative programs, especially in games, is because the economic payoff is incredible. And then I think the other piece that's sort of an important part of this conversation is that this scheme is not about, it's not about incentivizing other companies to come do business here 
and then take their products elsewhere to make a profit, which is, you know, what you very frequently see in a lot of film schemes, right? Is you have these really big companies like Netflix and like Amazon, they come, they bring an incredible benefit to our economy. I think more than 3 billion annually, but ultimately the profits on those products go overseas when the studios return home. And this, you know, game rebate schemes incentivize the creation of IP in New Zealand that stays in New Zealand, the jobs stay in New Zealand, the revenue is realized in New Zealand. So I think it's it's kind of unfair to, you know, sort of paint the industry or even incentive schemes in general with the same brush and, you know, imply that other industries would yield the same results. Every industry is unique and, you know, our scheme wouldn't necessarily work in other industries. Um, but we're also, the goal has never been to be the best incentive scheme in the world. Our goal from the beginning has always been to sort of look at what our industry does well and see what ways that we can grow the industry here at home to benefit, you know, the people of New Zealand in the future. So lastly, you know, the having got this very unexpected by the sound of things, but but pretty profound win in that budget, is there a sort of not an end game, because because this thing will will roll forever, ideally. But certainly, like a how you imagine that might impact the the industry, and and what it might look like in a few years' time, um, if if everyone kind of holds their nerve and this thing goes according to plan. You mean, what do I see the future of the New Zealand industry looking like? Yeah, and I think when we spoke earlier, you talked about the 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 fact that these. The, the rebate doesn't exist in isolation, but it sits alongside the Australian one and that there is an opportunity for this to be a bit of a, a regional hub for for the, the sector in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been so focused on this conversation of competing with Australia for so long that I think that's the message that's kind of ingrained in everyone's heads. But I think now that we have the GDSR and so many of New Zealand's political parties have committed to keeping it. I think it's time that we sort of shift that conversation to say, you know, how can New Zealand and Australia work together to create, you know, to make this part of the world a sort of gaming hub in the same way that Finland and Sweden and Norway have. Um, And I think we have a really unique opportunity. I mean, we're sort of, our geographic isolation has been such a hindrance for so long, but I think in this particular area, it could be a real benefit for us. I mean, we're sort of uniquely placed between the West Coast of the United States and, you know, Japan and China and Korea, these sort of major players in the games industry. You know, I think that New Zealand and Australia together could easily become this hub, not just for games, but sort of this future of creative media that I talked about, you know, the, the metaverse and AI and blockchain, all of these technologies sort of converge around creativity. And I think the countries that capitalize on that the best are going to be the ones who invest in this space. You know, I always love to say everyone's going to be at our party. They just don't know it yet. And that's because, you know, games and game technology have become so ubiquitous, you know, across engineering and aerospace really everyone is using some form of game tech. And so I think if New Zealand and Australia can sort of get together and say, how do we foster that development 
collaboratively, you know, how do we grow the games industry, our sort of collective games industries to become something greater um, than either of them are individually. I, I think that's an incredible opportunity for us to become well known for that. Uh, it's a it's a pretty exciting uh, time and, and a, a very worthwhile goal. Uh, and yeah, hope, hope it goes well. So um, thanks so much for coming on The Fold today, Chelsea. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Kia ora e te iwi, te ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.